Chapter Seven of El Dorado by Baroness Orzy, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in June two thousand and seven. Chapter Seven, the most precious life in Europe. Once more he was being led through the interminable corridors of the gigantic building. Once more, from the narrow barred windows close by him, he heard the heart-breaking sighs, the moans, the curses which spoke of tragedies that he could only guess. Heron was walking on ahead of him, preceding him by some fifty metres or so, his long legs covering the distances more rapidly than de Batz could follow them. The latter knew his way well about the old prison. Few men in Paris possessed that accurate knowledge of its intricate passages and its network of cells and halls which de Batz had acquired after a close and persevering study. He himself could have led Heron to the doors of the tower where the little Dauphin was being kept imprisoned but unfortunately he did not possess the keys that would open all the doors which led to it. There were sentinels at every gate, groups of soldiers at each end of every corridor. The great, now-empty courtyards, thronged with prisoners in the daytime, were alive with soldiery even now. Some walked up and down with fixed bayonet on shoulder, others sat in groups on the stone copings or squatted on the ground, smoking or playing cards, but all of them were alert and watchful. Heron was recognised everywhere the moment he appeared and though in these days of equality no one presented arms, nevertheless every guard stood aside to let him pass, or, when necessary, opened a gate for the powerful chief agent of the Committee of General Security. Indeed, de Batz had no keys such as these to open the way for him to the presence of the martyred little king. Thus the two men wended their way on in silence, one preceding the other. De Batz walked leisurely, thoughtfully, taking stock of everything he saw the gates, the barriers, the positions of sentinels and warders, of everything, in fact, that might prove a help or a hindrance presently, when the great enterprise would be hazarded. At last, still in the wake of Heron, he found himself once more behind the main entrance-gate, underneath the archway on which gave the guichet of the concierge. Here, too, there seemed to be an unnecessary number of soldiers. Two were doing sentinel outside the guichet, but there were others in a file against the wall. Heron rapped with his keys against the door of the concierge's lodge. Then, as it was not immediately opened from within, he pushed it open with his foot. "'The concierge?' he queried peremptorily. From a corner of the small panelled room there came a grunt and a reply. "'Gone to bed, quoi?' The man who previously had guided de Batz to Heron's door slowly struggled to his feet. He had been squatting somewhere in the gloom, and had been roused by Heron's rough command. He slouched forward now, still carrying a boot in one hand, and a blacking-brush in the other. "'Take this lantern, then,' said the chief agent, with a snarl directed at the sleeping concierge, "'and come along. Why are you still here?' he added, as if in afterthought. "'The citizen concierge was not satisfied with the way I had done his boots,' muttered the man, with an evil leer, as he spat contemptuously on the floor. "'An aristo, quoi? A hell of a place, this. Twenty cells to sweep out every day, and boots to clean for every aristo of a concierge or warder who demands it. Is that work for a free-born patriot, I ask?' "'Well, if you are not satisfied, citoyen Dupont,' retorted Heron dryly, "'you may go when you like. You know there are plenty of others ready to do your work. Nineteen hours a day, and nineteen sous by way of payment. I've had fourteen days of this convict work.' He continued to mutter under his breath, whilst Heron, paying no further heed to him, turned abruptly towards a group of soldiers stationed outside. "'En avant, corporal,' he said. "'Bring four men with you. We go up to the tower.' The small procession was formed. On ahead the lantern-bearer, with arched spine and shaking knees, dragging shuffling footsteps along the corridor, then the corporal with two of his soldiers, then Heron closely followed by de Batz, and finally two more soldiers bringing up the rear. Heron had given the bunch of keys to the man Dupont. The latter on ahead, holding the lantern aloft, opened one gate after another. 
At each gate he waited for the little procession to file through, then he relocked the gate and passed on. Up two or three flights of winding stairs set in the solid stone, and the final heavy door was reached. De Batz was meditating. Heron's precautions for the safeguarding of the most precious life in Europe were more complete than he had anticipated. What lavish liberality would be required! What superhuman ingenuity and boundless courage in order to break down all the barriers that had been set up round that young life that flickered inside this grim tower! Of these three requisites the corpulent, complacent intriguer possessed only the first in a considerable degree. He could be exceedingly liberal with the foreign money which he had at his disposal. As for courage and ingenuity, he believed that he possessed both, but these qualities had not served him in very good stead in the attempts which he had made at different times to rescue the unfortunate members of the royal family from prison. His overwhelming egotism would not admit for a moment that in ingenuity and pluck the Scarlet Pimpernel and his English followers could outdo him, but he did wish to make quite sure that they would not interfere with him in the highly remunerative work of saving the Dauphin. Heron's impatient call roused him from these meditations. The little party had come to a halt outside a massive, iron-studded door. At a sign from the chief agent, the soldier stood at attention. He then called de Batz and the lantern-bearer to him. He took a key from his massive breeches pocket, and with his own hand unlocked the massive door. He curtly ordered the lantern-bearer and de Batz to go through. Then he himself went in, and finally once more relocked the door behind him, the soldiers remaining on guard on the landing outside. Now the three men were standing in a square antechamber, dank and dark, devoid of furniture save for a large cupboard that filled the whole of one wall. The others, mildewed and stained, were covered with a greyish paper, which here and there hung away in strips. Heron crossed this antechamber, and with his knuckles rapped against a small door opposite. "'Hola!' he shouted. "'Simon, mon vieux, tu es là?' From the inner room came the sound of voices, a man's and a woman's, and now, as if in response to Heron's call, the shrill tones of a child. There was some shuffling to of footsteps, and some pushing about of furniture. Then the door was opened, and a gruff voice invited the belated visitors to enter. The atmosphere in this further room was so thick that at first de Batz was only conscious of the evil smells that pervaded it—smells which were made up of the fumes of tobacco, of burning coke, of a smoky lamp and of stale food, and mingling through it all, the pungent odour of raw spirits. Heron had stepped briskly in, closely followed by de Batz. The man Dupont, with a matter of satisfaction, put down his lantern and curled himself up in a corner of the antechamber. His interest in the spectacle so favoured by citizen Heron had apparently been exhausted by constant repetition. De Batz looked round him with keen curiosity, with which disgust was ready enough to mingle. The room itself might have been a large one. It was almost impossible to judge of its size, so crammed was it with heavy and light furniture of every conceivable shape and type. There was a monumental wooden bedstead in one corner, a huge sofa covered in black horsehair in another. A large table stood in the centre of the room, and there were at least four capacious armchairs round it. There were wardrobes and cabinets, a diminutive washstand and a huge pier-glass. There were innumerable boxes and packing-cases, cane-bottomed chairs and what-nots everywhere. The place looked like a depot for second-hand furniture. In the midst of all the litter, de Batz at last became conscious of two people, who stood staring at him and at Heron. He saw a man before him, somewhat fleshy of build, with smooth, mouse-coloured hair brushed away from a central parting, and ending in a heavy curl above each ear. The eyes were wide open and pale in colour, the lips unusually thick, and with a marked downward droop. Close beside him stood a youngish-looking woman, whose unwieldy bulk, however, and pallid skin, revealed the sedentary life and the ravages of ill-health. Both appeared to regard Heron with a certain amount of awe. 
and de Batz with a vast measure of curiosity. Suddenly the woman stood aside, and in the far corner of the room there was displayed to the Gascon royalist's cold, calculating gaze the pathetic figure of the uncrowned King of France. "'How is it Capet is not yet in bed?' queried Heron, as soon as he caught sight of the child. "'He wouldn't say his prayers this evening,' replied Simon, with a coarse laugh, "'and he wouldn't drink his medicine. Pah!' he added with a snarl. "'This is a place for dogs, and not for human folk.' "'If you are not satisfied, mon vieux,' retorted Heron curtly, "'you can send in your resignation when you like. There are plenty who will be glad of the place.' The ex-cobbler gave another surly growl, and expectorated on the floor in the direction where stood the child. "'Little vermin,' he said, "'he's more trouble than man or woman can bear.' The boy, in the meanwhile, seemed to take but little notice of the vulgar insults put upon him by his guardian. He stood, a quaint, impassive little figure, more interested apparently in de Batz, who was a stranger to him, than in the three others whom he knew. De Batz noted that the child looked well nourished, and that he was warmly clad in a rough woollen shirt with cloth breeches, with coarse grey stockings and thick shoes. But he also saw that the clothes were indescribably filthy, as were the child's hands and face. The golden curls, among which a young and queenly mother had once loved to pass her slender perfumed fingers, now hung bedraggled, greasy, and lank around the little face, from the lines of which every trace of dignity and of simplicity had long since been erased. There was no look of the martyr about this child now, even though, mayhap, his small back had often smarted under his vulgar tutor's rough blows. Rather did the pale young face wear the air of sullen indifference, and an abject desire to please, which would have appeared heart-breaking to any spectator less self-seeking and egotistic than this Gascon conspirator. Madame Simon had called him to her while her man and the citizen Heron were talking, and the child went readily enough, without any sign of fear. She took the corner of her coarse, dirty apron in her hand, and wiped the boy's mouth and face with it. "'I can't keep him clean,' she said, with an apologetic shrug of the shoulders and a look at de Batz. "'There, now,' she added, speaking once more to the child, "'drink like a good boy, and say your lesson to please mamma, and then you shall go to bed.' She took a glass from the table, which was filled with a clear liquid that de Batz at first took to be water, and held it to the boy's lips. He turned his head away and began to whimper. "'Is the medicine very nasty?' queried de Batz. "'Mon Dieu, but no, citizen,' exclaimed the woman. "'It is good, strong eau de vie, the best that can be procured. Capet likes it, really, don't you, Capet? It makes you happy and cheerful, and sleep well of nights. Why, you had a glassful yesterday, and enjoyed it. Take it now,' she added in a quick whisper, seeing that Simon and Heron were in close conversation together. "'You know it makes papa angry if you don't have at least a half a glass now and then.' The child wavered for a moment longer, making a quaint little grimace of distaste. But at last he seemed to make up his mind that it was wisest to yield over so small a matter, and he took the glass from Madame Simon. And thus did de Batz see the descendant of Saint-Louis quaffing a glass of raw spirit at the bidding of a rough cobbler's wife, whom he called by the fond and foolish name sacred to childhood, Maman. Selfish egoist though he was, de Batz turned away in loathing. Simon had watched the little scene with obvious satisfaction. He chuckled audibly when the child drank the spirit, and called Heron's attention to him, whilst a look of triumph lit up his wide, pale eyes. "'And now, mon petit,' he said jovially, "'let the citizen hear you say your prayers.' He winked towards the bats, evidently anticipating a good deal of enjoyment for the visitor from what was coming. From a heap of litter in a corner of the room he fetched out a greasy red bonnet adored with a tricolour cockade, and a soiled and tattered flag, which had once been white, and had a golden fleur-de-lis embroidered upon it. The cap he set on the child's head, and the flag he threw upon the floor. "'Now, Capet, your prayers,' 
he said, with another chuckle of amusement. All his movements were rough, and his speech almost ostentatiously coarse. He banged against the furniture as he moved about the room, kicking a footstool out of the way or knocking over a chair. De Batz instinctively thought of the perfumed stillness of the rooms at Versailles, of the army of elegant, high-born ladies who administered to the wants of this child, who stood there now before him, a cap on his yellow hair, and his shoulder held up to his ear with that gesture of careless indifference peculiar to children when they are sullen or uncared for. Obediently, quite mechanically, it seemed, the boy trod on the flag which Henri IV had borne before him at Ivry, and le roi Soleil had flaunted in the face of the armies of Europe. The son of the Bourbons was spitting on their flag, and wiping his shoes upon its tattered falls. With shrill, cracked voice he sang the Carmagnole, Ça ira, ça ira, les aristos à la lanterne, until de Batz himself felt inclined to stop his ears and to rush from the place in horror. Louis the Seventeenth, whom the hearts of many had proclaimed King of France by the grace of God, the child of the Bourbons, the eldest son of the Church, was stepping a vulgar dance over the flag of Saint Louis, which he had been taught to defile. His pale cheeks glowed as he danced, his eyes shone with the unnatural light kindled in them by the intoxicating liquor. With one slender hand he waved the red cap with the tricolour cockade, and shouted, "'Vive la République!' Madame Simon was clapping her hands, looking on the child with obvious pride, and a kind of rough maternal affection. Simon was gazing on Heron for approval, and the latter nodded his head, murmuring words of encouragement and of praise. "'Thy catechism now, Capet, thy catechism!' shouted Simon in a hoarse voice. The boy stood at attention, cap on head, hands on his hips, legs wide apart, and feet firmly planted on the fleur-de-lis, the glory of his forefathers. "'Thy name?' queried Simon. "'Louis Capet,' replied the child in a clear, high-pitched voice. "'What art thou?' "'A citizen of the Republic of France.' "'What was thy father?' "'Louis Capet, ci-devant king, a tyrant who perished by the will of the people.' "'What was thy mother?' "'A—' de Batz involuntarily uttered a cry of horror. Whatever the man's private character was, he had been born a gentleman, and his every instinct revolted against what he saw and heard. The scene had positively sickened him. He turned precipitately towards the door. "'How now, citizen?' queried the committee's agent, with a sneer. "'Are you not satisfied with what you see?' "'Mayhap the citizen would like to see Capet sitting in a golden chair,' interposed Simon the cobbler, with a sneer. "'And me and my wife kneeling and kissing his hand, what?' "'Tis the heat of the room,' stammered de Batz, who was fumbling with the lock of the door. My head began to swim. "'Spit on the accursed flag, then, like a good patriot, like Capet,' retorted Simon, gruffly. "'Here, Capet, my son,' he added, pulling the boy by the arm with a rough gesture. "'Get thee to bed. Thou art quite drunk enough to satisfy any good Republican.' By way of a caress he tweaked the boy's ear, and gave him a prod in the back with his bent knee. He was not willfully unkind, for just now he was not angry with the lad. Rather, he was vastly amused with the effect Capet's prayer and Capet's recital of his catechism had had on the visitor. As to the lad, the intensity of excitement in him was immediately followed by an overwhelming desire for sleep. Without any preliminary of undressing or of washing, he tumbled, just as he was, onto the sofa. Madame Simon, with quite pleasing solicitude, arranged a pillow under his head, and the very next moment the child was fast asleep. "'Tis well, citoyen Simon,' said Heron in his turn, going towards the door. I'll report favourably on you to the Committee of Public Security. As for the citoyenne, she had best be more careful, turning to the woman Simon with a snarl on his evil face. There was no cause to arrange a pillow under the head of that vermin's spawn. Many good patriots have no pillows to put under their heads. Take that pillow away, and I don't like the shoes on the brat's feet. Sabots are quite good enough." Citoyenne Simon made no reply. Some sort of retort had apparently hovered on her lips, 
but had been checked, even before it was uttered, by a peremptory look from her husband. Simon the cobbler, snarling in speech but obsequious in manner, prepared to accompany the citizen-agent to the door. De Batz was taking a last look at the sleeping child. The uncrowned King of France was wrapped in a drunken sleep, with the last spoken insult upon his dead mother still hovering on his childish lips. End of chapter 7